Thanks very much. We bow our heads and pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for these words of Jesus that have been preserved for us. We thank you for your Holy Spirit who takes them and writes writes them upon our hearts today. And we pray that whether they are familiar to us or whether we're all still trying to figure out who Jesus is and what it means to follow him, that you would speak to us today. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, Rising food prices, rising energy bills, rising interest rates, uh, cutting back on non-essentials, digging into savings, struggling to pay the bills, worrying about the future, regretting over not having saved more in the past, feeling angry at how unfair it feels, feeling despair that you just can't do anything. Well, the, the cost of living crisis over the last few years has put wealth and possessions under the spotlight. What do we do with our money? How do we feel about what we've got or not got? To many of us, I guess, it has felt like a bit of a novel crisis that came out of nowhere. Uh, Others may well have lived with great financial stress and worry and anxiety for many years. The people Jesus spoke to faced the same sort of issues. And so Jesus taught them, how does God want us to interact with money and stuff and possessions, with bank accounts and pension funds and savings and benefits and food shopping and energy bills and household goods and holidays and hobbies. How does he want us to think about all of that sort of stuff? Because wealth and possessions, they're not spiritually neutral things. They are high-risk, handle-with-care type things. In the first half of this chapter, if you remember, Jesus warned his listeners about a number of spiritual dangers on the road ahead on the way to heaven. He he thought about hypocrisy and fearing people more than God and and religious persecution. And in the section today, he turns to another spiritual threat, that of possessions. He begins with a really stern warning about a wrong attitude towards it. He then shares a loving encouragement to help us put our worries into perspective. And finally, he issues a challenging call about one thing at least to do with our wealth. Uh, So first of all, the warning, the godless stupidity of greed. The godless stupidity of greed. Verse 13, someone in the crowd said to him, teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Well, this guy's interruption is almost cartoon-like in its absurdity. A little like the video clip we're about to see, which a friend of mine shared with me during the week. So if we could have that now. It was all smiles after Barb Reddick and her nephew Tyrone McGinnis picked up their big win, $1.2 million chase the ace jackpot. But it didn't take long for things to turn sour when both were handed separate checks for $600,000. Chase the ace winners, it's going to court. I've taken them to court, it was my team. Why's that? Because I bought, I bought the ticket, and now he's trying to lie and say we. I said split. I said split with the 50-50, not with no JCAs. I'm taking him to court. I'm getting my lawyer tomorrow. Both names were on the winning ticket. I put his name on the thing. I told him for good luck. Now he's lost. Wow. I wonder what you'd say to her. I'm not quite sure what she's talking about exactly, but she's clearly unwilling to share the winnings with her nephew, so unwilling that she's going to take him to court. 
Uh, Maybe you would say the same sort of thing to her as Jesus says to this man. Verse 14, Jesus replied, Man, who appointed me a judge or an arbiter between you? Then he said to them, Watch out, be on your guard against all kinds of greed. Life does not consist in an abundance of possessions. Greed is the desire for more and more stuff. It's a clear and present danger to spiritual life. Do you know why? Because greed says that stuff is what life is all about. But real life is about knowing the one who gives us stuff and life. Greed makes the creature the ultimate thing instead of the creator. And so no wonder elsewhere the Bible calls greed idolatry. And Jesus drives his point home with a story. And he told them this parable. The ground of a certain rich man yielded an abundant harvest. He thought to himself, what shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. This guy is already on the top 10 rich list. And now he gets a bumper harvest and he faces a genuine dilemma. He thinks to himself, what shall I do? And then he comes up with a really sound solution. I will tear down my barns and build bigger ones. And there I will store my surplus grain. He doesn't think I'll just build one new barn. He doesn't think, maybe I'll just add an extension to this one. He thinks, no, I'm going to start again. Knock them all down. Massive wholesale redevelopment project. What a brilliant idea. What a dreadful motivation. Verse 19, I'll say to myself, you have plenty of grain. Lined up for many years. Take life easy. Eat, drink, and be merry. His attitude, it couldn't be more different to the sort of attitude God wanted his people to have in the Old Testament. Do you remember what God said to them? He said, when you harvest your grain... Take some of the first bits of your grain and give it to me as, a, as an offering, a sacrifice of thanksgiving. And before you even harvest any of your grain, make sure you leave some around the edge of your field for the poor people in the land. But this man gives no thought to God, no thought to other people. He thinks it's all for me. And what lies ahead? Well, a future of uninhibited hedonistic materialism. Or maybe it doesn't. God said to him, you Fool. Idiot. This very night, your life will be demanded from you. Then who will get what you have prepared for yourself? Foolishness in the Bible is it's not intellectual failure. It is moral guilt. And the fool lives as if God doesn't exist. The fool lives as if God owes him nothing, as if he owes God nothing. The fool lives as if she'll never be accountable to God. The fool is wrong because our lives are on loan from God for a short little while. And one day when we meet him, which we will, money won't be our friend. When we die, we will leave every single penny behind. And so we need to pay attention to the warning. Beware the godless stupidity of greed. Verse 21, this is how it will be with whoever stores up things for themselves, but is not rich towards God. In other words, there is a danger, Jesus says, to every single person who's listening to him back then, to every person who's listening to him today, that on the day we meet God, God may say to you or to me, fool. What dreadful words. What a dreadful word that would be to hear. What an indictment upon our lives. What an exposure that we'd got life upside down and back to front and worshipped created things instead of the creator. So whether we are rich or poor or somewhere in the middle, Greed is simply the desire for more. Because we think that more will give us 
satisfaction and success and security. But whether it's just a little bit more or a lot more, more is still more, and more is never enough. Because we weren't made for stuff. We were made for relationship with God. I came across this quote this week. The Scottish writer George MacDonald, uh, a man who greatly influenced C.S. Lewis, he, he put it like this. The heart of a man cannot hoard. His brain or his hand may gather into its box and hoard. But the moment the thing has passed into the box, the heart has lost it and is hungry again. If a man would have, it is the giver he must have. You see, greed blinds us to the reality that we were made for relationship with God. It makes the present everything and eternity an irrelevance. So beware the godless stupidity of greed. And today, maybe we just need to examine our hearts and minds a little bit and think to ourselves, is there even just a little bit of this man in me? Because if there is, we need to listen to what Jesus says next. He began with a warning, and then he turns to a loving and warm encouragement to help us put possessions into perspective. So second, the worry-busting goodness of God. The worry-busting goodness of God. Then Jesus said to his disciples, Therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat, or about your body, what you will wear, for life is more than food and the body more than clothes. Jesus knew that life is more than living. Life is not defined by stuff that we may have or may not have, but by whether or not we know the one who made us. And that relationship with God is sustained each and every day, and so we can trust him. Verse 24, Consider the ravens. They do not sow or reap. They have no storeroom or barn. Yet God feeds them. How much more valuable you are than birds. Ravens don't go and sit on a tractor or a combine harvester. They don't worry about where their next meal is coming from. Yet God is good to, to ravens, unclean birds in the Bible. Of course he's going to be good to precious human beings, creatures made in his image. And so Jesus says, worrying is literally a waste of time. Who of you by worrying can add a single hour to your life? Since you cannot do this very little thing, why do you worry about the rest? We know, don't we, that certain activities do take time off our lives. Maybe smoking, or drinking too much alcohol, or eating too much processed food. But somehow we imagine that worry will do the opposite, that worry will extend our lives, but it won't. From everyday worry to a more acute anxiety to a phobia, or panic attacks, or OCD, or PTSD, worry can become life-dominating, life-debilitating, even life-shortening. Of course, there will be none of us here who never worry about anything. Some of us here today may be in the midst of chronic worry or acute anxiety, and it can be the right thing to seek professional help from others. You may already be doing that. Jesus, though, wants us to know that worry, wherever it falls on that spectrum, is also a deeply spiritual issue. It is a response to life in this world, and so it is a response to God, ultimately. And so Jesus says, consider God and his goodness and trust him. 
Consider how the wild flowers grow. They do not labor or spin. Yet I tell you, not even Solomon in all his splendor was dressed like one of these. If that is how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today, and tomorrow is thrown into the fire, how much more would he clothe you, you of little faith? Uh, Linda was telling me the other day about an exhibition. I think it's a picture of this. Here we are on the screen that she went to see at Kensington Palace. Uh, Apparently, it was all about how court fashion has influenced modern-day celebrity fashion. Uh, She had a great time. I wouldn't personally go to an exhibition like that. But anyway, Linda had a great time. And it got me thinking. Even the most stunning and stylish human fashions ever invented, the most expensive court fashions or modern celebrity fashions, they're not a patch on the splendor of flowers. Anemones. Lilies, bluebells, roses, tulips, poppies, even a dandelion or a daisy. None of those species work to be beautiful, do they? But God just gives them beauty, even just for a little while before they're thrown on a compost heap or cut with a lawnmower. And and Jesus says, one day God will clothe you in a splendor that far outweighs the splendor of flowers. Because God is going to give you a resurrection body. A body when all the worries and pains and troubles of this life will be a distant memory. German theologian Dietrich Bonhoeffer said this about possessions. Earthly possessions dazzle our eyes and delude us into thinking that they can provide security and freedom from anxiety. Yet all the time they are the very source of anxiety. We don't just want clothes or food. We worry about not being able to afford designer clothes and taste the difference food. We worry about not having enough personal space or missing out on that extra holiday. We are anxious that our children are more successful than average. We worry that next next week's meeting won't go better than the car crash meeting last week. And we somehow imagine that possessions like that will deal with worries, and they actually do the opposite. And so Jesus invites us to look away from what we have or may not have, and he says to us, go and look at the flowers. Go and look at the worry-busting goodness of God. Do not set your heart on what you will eat or drink. Do not worry about it. For the pagan world runs after all such things, and your Father knows that you need them. But seek his kingdom, and these things will be given to you as well. So Jesus says to us, you've got a decision to make. Swear loyalty to all the competing kingdoms of this world, or be loyal to God's kingdom. If we choose the first, if we choose all the competing kingdoms of this world, we'll worry about many things, and we'll just run around all over the place trying to get more and more at risk from the godless stupidity of greed. But if we trust our Father's goodness, the one who feeds the ravens, the one who clothes the flowers, then we will make his kingdom our chief concern. And we may well be deeply concerned about all sorts of things in life. It's not wrong to be concerned about stuff. Issues in our lives or closer to home or further across the world. But we won't be crippled by over-concern, which is what worry is. Because we trust that our Father will give us what we need according to his perfect timing and love. So how can we put this into practice? How can we leave worry behind 
and greed behind and have a kingdom-focused attitude towards wealth and possessions? Well, I think the way Jesus finishes is actually a little bit surprising. It's one way of committing our lives to God's kingdom. We commit our lives to his care, but finally, Jesus says, consider the eternal priority of gospel giving. The eternal priority of gospel giving. Do not be afraid, little flock, for your father has been pleased to give you the kingdom. What a contrast. Do you remember where we started? We started with one man wanting his brother to give him 50% share of the estate. And Jesus says to his few and fragile little flock, you've already got 100% stake in God's kingdom. And so whereas one man is consumed by greed, Jesus says here is a whole movement of people who can be set free in generosity. Sell your possessions and give to the poor. Provide purses for yourselves that will not wear out, a treasure in heaven that will never fail, where no thief comes near and no moth destroys. It's unashamedly practical. Jesus' followers must not be those people who build bigger and bigger and bigger barns, but keep the doors closed for themselves. Jesus' followers are those who open their hands and give generously to others. That is exactly what the early church did. And it is what Christians have done ever since, given generously to those in need. What does this mean? Well, a couple of years ago, we started a church hardship fund. And it's been good to see that put into practice in small ways. There may be other ways, other works of practical mercy that we could support either inside the church or outside the church in the future. If you've got ideas about that, do speak to me. I'd love to know. But we must never forget that the greatest mercy ministry is lifting people out of spiritual poverty. As Christians, we are free to give our money to whoever we like. But no one else is going to give money to causes that are going to prepare people for heaven. That's up, for us, up to us. And so if we value God's kingdom most of all, then we will see this eternal priority of gospel giving. Giving in this way is a way to provide a purse for yourself that never wears out and a treasure that never fails. Isn't it amazing to think that, that when you get to heaven, there'll be people there, at least in part, because of money that you gave to help them hear the gospel or to grow in their faith. And so Jesus encourages us to use our money well as a church. He says, spend it wisely here in Wandsworth. Give it away to gospel ministry elsewhere. He nudges us as individuals to keep being generous or to start giving, if we haven't done that yet. Today just happens to be the one Sunday in the month when we say a prayer, thanking God for gifts and committing them to him. And we do that because it's also the one Sunday in the month when we come to the Lord's table to remember how Jesus became spiritually poor so that we might become spiritually rich. So if you are trusting in Jesus' death for yourself, but you haven't yet shared in this privilege of gospel giving, can I encourage you to to do that? There's information at the back about it. So giving money away is never easy. It's not easy for individuals. It's not easier for churches. It'd be easier for us as a church not to give money away to mission partners. But it's not right to hoard it. It is good to give it away. Money, just like our lives, is a gift on loan to us from God. And so Jesus says, greed is godless and stupid. Worry is a waste of time. Generous gospel giving is good for your soul. Verse 34. 
For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. See, the moment we willingly part with our cash and give it away to a gospel cause, we are saying to our hearts, be rich towards God. Be rich towards the stuff that matters for eternity. So many have felt the pinch, haven't they, of the recent years. The cost of living crisis is still a painful time. We don't have all the answers. We may face difficult decisions. Jesus has a lot to say to help us. Wealth and possessions are high risk, handle with care, spiritual dangers. But they are also good gifts from our loving Heavenly Father. So Jesus, first of all, warns us about a wrong attitude, the godless stupidity of greed. He then encourages us to get things in perspective, the worry-busting goodness of God. And then he calls us to, to use what we have for this greatest cause, the eternal priority of gospel giving. Should have a moment of quiet to, to pray about those things, putting them into practice in our lives.